Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Buying a car used to be about two things. One was style. Luxuriously appointed inside and out. The Futuramic Oldsmobile brings truly modern post-war design to the automotive field. And the other was performance. Ford's new 130-horsepower Y-Block V8 or 115-horsepower Mileage Maker 6. Both high-compression, low-friction engines that give you new responsiveness in performance. But that was when petrol heads ruled the roads and Detroit dominated the global car industry. Now, fewer than 10% of drivers say they like driving for the sake of driving. And China is on course to overtake Japan as the world's biggest car exporter. As motorists trade in their old petrol and diesel cars for battery-powered replacements, they're less focused on hardware and more interested in software. Tesla updating its software that includes a karaoke feature. They're also rolling out a self-driving package. In general, the add-on going to cost $5,000. The ditching of internal combustion engines, which are expensive to design and produce in favor of electric cars, has also lowered the barrier to entry for new car manufacturers. That has led to an explosion in investor interest in new brands. Tesla, Fisker, Lordstown, all of these stocks are in the green, all part of that sector that continues to build and grow. And across the Pacific, China-based EV makers, Neo, Li Automotive, Xpeng, also in drive mode. All of which has left the car industry facing its biggest challenge since Ford began mass manufacturing in 1908. So where will this new road lead? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Lexington, Kentucky, I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, the remaking of the auto industry. First, we'll hear how the car industry is changing. If you bought a BMW, it was the roar of the engine, but it was the clunk of the door as it shut. But in future, it's going to be software that defines car brands. Then, we'll hear from the boss of one of those car companies looking to challenge the likes of BMW. Just because you're an established car maker that was super good at making gasoline cars doesn't mean that you're super good at making electric vehicles. And finally, we'll hear about the Chinese companies targeting Western markets. One of the things that alarmed the European executives the most when coming to Shanghai Auto was the fact that there were so many new products from so many new brands. Alice, Tom, hello. Hello. Hey, Mike. So, Alice, Lexington, Kentucky, again, back in Kentucky. Yes, I'm back, staying with my in-laws for a few days. And it's a lovely time of year in Lexington. Things have really warmed up. Spring has sprung. Apparently, uh, one of our listeners thought that I wasn't a fan of the horse capital of the world. But I, I am. I'm having a great time. Glad to be back. 
So I'm going to reveal my minimal understanding of American geography here by asking you, did you drive to Lexington, Kentucky by any chance? Do you drive at all? Are you a driver? I did not drive to Lexington, Kentucky. I did fly here. You can drive from DC, but I think it's quite a long way. I think it's like 10, 12 hours maybe, which doesn't phase Americans, but does phase me because that's probably the entire length of Britain. In general, I'm not a big driver. I only passed my test in the US a few months ago, but I did rent a little car to take Stevie, our producer, down to uh, Mount Vernon and driving was all right. I had a good time. Tom, what about yourself? Is that a long drive by Australian standards or a short drive? Yeah, I mean, 10 hours is a long time to spend in a car, I think, wherever you are in the world. In the UK where I am, I don't drive a lot. I have to say, living in London, owning a car seems a little unnecessary to me. Occasionally, we do go for a trip into the countryside and so rent a car for that. But that's about it, really. What about you, Mike? Are you uh, the motorhead among us? I actually quite like driving, but um, in Singapore, the tax on a car often costs multiples of the car's value in the first place. So I am not a driver here. But the reason I wanted to talk about all of this now is because our colleague Simon Wright has just published a special report on the car industry. It came at a really interesting time with so much activity among Chinese car manufacturers, so much growth in the EV industry. To talk to it, I wanted to bring Simon in. Simon, hi. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. So obviously, electric cars weren't invented yesterday. Tesla was founded in 2003. Why did you decide that now is the time to take the deep dive into the car industry? Well, I'd make a couple of points there. Actually, electrification in the early days of the car industry vied with the internal combustion engine for dominance and with the internal combustion engine at one. And indeed, although Tesla was founded in 2003, it wasn't in 2012 until the Model S, its first volume car, came out. So it's been both a long process and an even shorter process than you make out. But, you know, electrification is only one part of the car industry. What my special report looks at is an industry where almost everything is changing at once. Electrification is merely the changing of a powertrain. There are other more sort of consequential changes going on that will make it very difficult for the incumbents to keep up and gives the opportunity for new entrants to enter an industry that's been historically very, very hard to get into. So tell us a little bit about those new entrants and why is it that electric vehicles in particular seem an easier market to enter to than the old internal combustion engine models? Tesla has provided inspiration for a lot of new car makers to come along to enter the car industry, an industry that was generally very hard to enter because of the enormous barriers to entry, in particular the internal combustion engine. Incredibly expensive to develop and incredibly expensive and fiddly to make. So there are two things. There's the capital and there's the difficulty of making a car with an internal combustion engine that has stopped new entrants. Electrification changes that. The electric drivetrains are much simpler, so it just makes it much less costly to get into the industry. That's not to say it still isn't very costly to do so, but it makes it much easier to do so. Also, at the same time, what we're seeing is the other big change in the car industry is the emergence of software as being incredibly important. In the past, the internal combustion engine and all the things that went around it were what defined a car's brand. You know, if you bought a BMW, it was the roar of the engine, but it was the clunk of the door as it shut. It was the sort of leather interior and the sort of horsepower under the bonnet. But in future, and 
the inspiration here is both Tesla and the sort of new Chinese car makers that are coming along. It's going to be software that defines car brands. It'll be the experience of driving much more. So the infotainment systems, the mood lighting, the massaging seats, as well as safety features and indeed automated driving features that will eventually become fully automated driving. So that's the cars themselves. What about the ways that they're sold? We've seen technology change, distribution models in all sorts of industries. Does that apply with cars too? I mean, retailing is changing. Tesla, again, the inspiration, it sells its cars directly. It doesn't advertise. It sells them online. You know, you can buy a whole car online directly from Tesla. The car industry, again, is doing the same thing. The incumbent industry is now looking to sell directly rather than going through the big dealership networks that it always used to go through for a couple of reasons. One, because it can keep control of pricing much better. But two, because with this software comes the opportunity to sell people services and upgrades. Cars will no longer be a static object that sort of get technologically worse you know, as time goes on. They'll be able to be upgradable. And car makers will be able to sell those upgrades just as Tesla does now. So there's a source of revenue. So car makers have to have a much more direct relationship with their customers. Thanks, Simon. That's really interesting. Please do stick around because we're going to come back to you a little bit later in the show. Thanks, Mike. Happy to. Now, one of those new entrants that Simon spoke about there is Fisker. It's a US firm, but it's beginning to deliver its first car, the Fisker Ocean, in Europe. The firm's founder is Henrik Fisker, and I spoke to him about his plans. Henrik, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks. Hi, it's great to be on your program. So a lot of car manufacturers are over a century old. Fisker is, I think, seven years old in its current incarnation. Why does the transition from fossil fuel powered to electric vehicles present this opportunity for companies to come into the market? Yeah, I think that what's happened is a little bit the Nokia moment where just because you're an established car maker that was super good at making gasoline cars doesn't mean that you're super good at making electric vehicles. We don't have to get rid of any legacy. We don't have to get rid of legacy suppliers. We don't have to get rid of legacy ways of doing things, you know, old processes, all this type of stuff. We're starting on a clean sheet of paper so we can go out, pick the materials we want, create the partnerships we want, and we can design a purpose-built electric vehicle without having to take over anything from some old gasoline cars that may work against what we are trying to achieve. So tell me about the business in general. What are the specific cars that you're trying to sell? What sort of markets are you looking to sell into, first of all? So we just started delivering the Fisker Ocean here in Europe. We have a total of 65,000 orders. We're looking at producing or manufacturing something in between 32,000 to 36,000 vehicles this year, and then ramping up to 60 to 70,000 vehicles next year. So obviously we are sold out until well into next year. We will also come to the UK in July, where we also have a lot of reservations. Our manufacturing plant is in Austria by a contract supplier called Magna, with whom we have a partnership. They already produce premium vehicles for some German car makers. So they know how to make high quality cars. And obviously we already started production and produced a lot of marketing vehicles. And like I said, the first customer vehicles. So that's all going really well. So that's an interesting model for auto manufacturing that some of our listeners might not be so familiar with. Can you explain a little bit about why you went for 
contract manufacturing, both in Europe and I think with Foxconn as well. What was the sort of decision-making process there? Well, you know, when we started up, I looked a little bit at the business model of Apple. They also outsource all their manufacturing. They design their products. They own the IP. They distribute them. They sell them. And that's exactly what we are doing, everything of the above. And why did we do that? Well, it cost several billion dollars to set up a plant. And just because you have a manufacturing plant doesn't guarantee a success in learning how to make high-quality cars out of the gate. So for us, what was important, more than brag about we have a plant, we wanted to make sure that we deliver high-quality cars to our customers. We wanted to make sure we could scale up. We have a relatively high-volume vehicle that starts at around 42,000 euro or about 35, 36,000 pounds in the UK. It also helps our business model by the fact that we don't have to go through the inefficiencies of owning your own plant, meaning when you start making vehicles, you probably don't make them as fast as you can a year later. But at Magna, we only pay for the most efficient way of making the car. So it's a relatively reasonable, small manufacturing fee. And that's interesting as well, because I think when people think about the legacy auto industry, they're thinking about these sort of auto cities, not just Detroit, but if you think about some of the Japanese manufacturers, they have huge urban areas in Japan or Thailand or other parts of Asia that are dedicated basically solely to the one company and one manufacturer. Do you think that going forward, you're likely to see more contract manufacturing in the auto industry in general? Not necessarily, because obviously the traditional car makers are stuck with a ton of factories that have spent billions of dollars, so they have to find a way to utilize them. And right now, in fact, some of these factories are underutilized, so I don't think we're going to see that necessarily. Secondly, there isn't a ton of other contract manufacturers. Like you mentioned earlier, we also struck a partnership with Foxconn, where we're right now negotiating a deal for Foxconn to help us make our second vehicle, the Pair, which will cost under 30,000 euro or under 27,000 pounds. They will help us make that car in the U.S., starting in the U.S., later we'll also make in Europe and in China. So they're getting into contract manufacturing, but there isn't a huge amount of contract manufacturers waiting around to pick up work. Secondly, it wasn't like Mac that would probably do it for all kind of startups. They made a special deal with us. They own a part of us. So I think we have a unique business model that's not necessarily easy to copy for anybody else. Let's talk about the Chinese market. And obviously, what we've seen a lot of recently is Chinese competition internationally expanding into different markets. A lot of Chinese car manufacturers, EV manufacturers doing this for the first time ever. What do you think of the competition there? And what do you make of the sort of dominance of the Chinese EV industry in general in areas like batteries where... Obviously, to some extent, the U.S. government, the administration would like to see more U.S. involvement in the sort of production and supply chains for batteries. Well, first of all, the Chinese have accelerated extremely fast when it comes to electrification, both, as you say, with batteries, but also with the cars themselves. They have got ahead in some areas of technology, specifically around entertainment, etc., in the vehicle. So I definitely see that they will become a competitor Secondly, design. Good design is in the eyes of the beholder, but I think we can lead in that. I do see that there's a lot of Chinese different brands being offered in Europe right now, but compared to how many brands, they actually don't have that higher market share. So I think 
it's still a wait and see to how quick the adoptions of Chinese vehicles because they've taken a very different strategy that, for example, the Chinese or the Koreans took when they entered Europe or U.S. The Japanese and Koreans entered U.S. and Europe with very low-cost vehicles, small low-cost vehicles. The Chinese are coming in with relatively big vehicles and relatively expensive vehicles. So I don't personally think that Viet Fisker see them as a big threat specifically. However, of course, everybody is a competitor who is in the same price segment or the same type of year. Just one final question. You have a partnership with CATL, the Chinese battery giant. For most car manufacturers, some sort of supply chain element that connects to China is just a reality of the battery industry in the EV world. But do you worry about the sort of geopolitics, particularly in terms of selling into the U.S. as a large market, the sort of souring relationship between the U.S. and China, does that concern you in the long term? Look, I think we have to solve all our trading issues one day or another because in the end of the day, we are only a successful world where we keep improving our standards of living if we're able to trade international. So I think we're going to eventually move back to more free trading. Even when we don't want to, we pretend. But the truth is everybody buys something from China and probably everybody buys something from America and everybody buys something from some European country. So it's today not any more possible to have a complicated product like a car made only from parts in one country. It doesn't exist. So we have to get to terms with that. We have to hopefully get some politicians in place that can negotiate and get to terms with that and get the world back in order so everything starts to run more smoothly. And I think that until then, there is other battery companies, and CHL, by the way, is looking to produce in Europe. We are looking to do some local battery assembly in the U.S. So we are a fast-moving company, and we can adjust to whatever is needed. And I think that's another advantage of being a startup. Henrik, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. It was great to be on your program. So, Tom, Alice, what I find really interesting here, and I must admit I was sort of ignorant of, was not just that electric vehicles are reshaping the car industry, which I think is obvious to everyone, but the actual material elements of building an EV that make it very different to building an internal combustion engine and the fact that the investment needed to start up is changing in its sort of structure. And that's allowing all of these new entrants in. I must admit, I didn't understand that. And I think that makes things a lot more interesting. And this gets to the sort of historical analogies for me that I find really interesting. I love reading the stuff about the US car companies going into a state of sort of blind panic from the late 60s onwards with the Japanese companies coming in. And it's sort of fascinating to me because you end up having an industrial story, a story about a given sector that becomes a sort of macro financial story because it's changing the balance of trade between the US and Japan, for example. And then by the 1980s, it's becoming the sort of geopolitical story and Reagan slapping tariffs on Japan to avoid this stuff. Yeah, so these sort of big epoch level changes in the car industry, I find really, really interesting. What jumped out about that to you guys? Yeah, I love the point you made about how countries being good at things can really become their entire national identity, which I definitely think is the case for Japan and Germany, as you pointed out. I thought what 
he was saying about the sort of different requirements for factories and how to build those and setting those up being sort of different was really gripping. I remember when we talked about the shift to electric vehicles in one of our previous episodes, we talked about how many fewer components are required for EVs than for traditional combustion engines and therefore the impact that that might have on how these things are put together, how many workers are required and other manufacturing features of building these newer cars. And it really is remarkable how quickly this shift has happened. I think it's a stat that one of us has used about the sort of rise of Chinese automakers. But China surpassed German exports of cars last year and is on track to uh, eclipse even Japan this year as well. Yeah, I was fascinated by this discussion around how a, a sort of opening has emerged for new disruptors, new competitors to enter the market. And it'll be really interesting to see how that does play out. So in my previous life as a consultant, I did quite a lot of work in the insurance industry. And and I remember five or so years ago when the consumer internet boom was kind of in full froth, the general consensus in the market was that insurtech firms were going to smash down the door and steal all the business away from these big lumbering incumbent insurers that were saddled with legacy tech and legacy distribution and so on. And frankly, that never really happened. And There's certainly been a lot of disruption as a result of new technologies over the past couple of decades, but it's not really been as broad-based as many expected. And there are all sorts of advantages that incumbents have that often go kind of underappreciated, whether that's regulatory know-how, whether that's brand and consumer trust or sheer balance sheet strength. And whether there's enough of that for legacy car makers to fend off these new rivals is to me, the big question. On the topic of disruption, one company that certainly has succeeded in upending its industry is Netflix. And I'm very much looking forward to reading a piece by our Schumpeter columnist in this week's edition of The Economist, which explores the impact of the writer's strike in America on the streaming giant. Listeners can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That is, if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll hear how Chinese brands are planning to crack the US auto market for the first time. But before that, we want to hear from you. We're always trying to improve. And whether you're a loyal fan or you're new to the Money Talks Club, we want to know what you think. So please take a few minutes to fill out our survey by going to economist.com slash survey. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Before the break, we heard from the boss of Fisker, a US car maker hoping to crack the domestic and European markets. Some of his biggest competition could now be from China. Although it's rare to see Chinese brands on US or European roads at the moment, that could be about to change. 
To find out more about China's car industry at home and its ambitions abroad, I spoke to Tu Li. He's based in the US, but he's the founder of Sino Auto Insights. Tu Li, thank you very much for joining us. Mike, thanks for having me. So let's start with the Chinese market itself. I was looking back at passenger car sales in China about 10 years ago, looking at the sort of 2013 numbers. You have about 20 million sales for the first time. Foreign car makers are overwhelmingly dominant. VW at the top of the list, that the top five manufacturers are all foreign. Something like a fifth of all the cars sold that year are Ford Focuses. You fast forward to now, by some measures, BYD has just leapfrogged VW. They sold more vehicles in Q1 than Ford Focus has sold in all of 2013. What is going on here? How do we account for this sort of change towards domestic brands and the sort of other changes that we've seen over the past decade? I think this dovetails into the new demographic of Chinese consumer, the digital natives, where they're getting into professional jobs and are able to afford passenger vehicles. One thing that should be noted is that China surpassed the United States, the number one automotive market in 2009. And so that has really pushed the reliance from the foreign automakers into the China market. And we're seeing that with Volkswagen Group having 50% of their profits coming from China. So this shift that you're talking about is very, very concerning for the Volkswagen Groups and for the General Motors of the worlds in the China market. And with these digital natives, their parents in the 2010s and 2012s and 2013s, they were the major buyers of passenger vehicles. And they wouldn't be caught dead in a Chinese brand. But what we've seen is an evolution, learned lessons from the state-owned enterprises, and then also this tectonic shift to new energy vehicles. In terms of the sort of international ambitions. Again, I think a lot of people have sort of woken up this year or or late last year to the fact that it does look like China is going to be a major exporter of vehicles. Where do you expect these companies to make the sort of biggest impact overseas? Where are the real expansion markets for them outside of China? The place where China EV Inc., and that's what I call collectively all the Chinese EV brands, Where they live and where they dominate is in the mass market, below 45,000 euro type of market segments. And they're really good with small crossovers and SUVs. So if we look at that price point, that's where they're going to really, really resonate. They're going to resonate in Southeast Asia because in Thailand, BYD has the number one EV product already in Israel. They have the number one EV product, the Addo 3. And what I see that also repeating itself in parts of Europe, including Germany, because currently Volkswagen kind of dominates with the ID series vehicles. But if we're looking and comparing features apples to apples, the BYD vehicles in general are a little bit better. And then to up the game, Zeker 
at the Shanghai Auto Show, launched the Zeker X, 190,000 RMB or about a $28,000 large crossover or, or mid-sized crossover that I think is going to sell like crazy. And I think one of the things that alarmed the European executives the most when coming to Shanghai Auto and likely not having been to China in three, three and a half years was the fact that, number one, there were so many new products from so many new brands. But the kicker was that the products were high quality, as good, almost as good as what the Germans are offering, what the French are offering, what the Italians are offering. So the challenge for the European Union and the UK is that they have aggressive targets, 2035, to ban the sale of petrol and diesel fueled engine vehicles. In the UK, it's even more extreme, 2030. And so the only way they get to 30, 40, 50, 60% penetration levels on that stuff by 2035 and 2030 is with the help of China EV Inc. When you look back to the 1980s, the US slapped tariffs on imports from Japan in large part because its automakers were so competitive. And in many ways, that seems to be happening again with China. You can imagine the face of certain US senators at seeing the likes of BYD climb up in the ranks of US car sales. Is geopolitics going to be a serious issue here again? I think it's going to be a major challenge, especially over the next 24, 30 months, because we're going to be electing a new president very soon in the next two years. And right now, it's popular on both sides of the aisle to kind of bash China. And so do I think the U.S. market is still too attractive? Yes. And do I think that at least a handful of China EV Inc. will eat a lot of that tariff in order to enter the U.S. market to kind of dip that toe to figure out, okay, how does my brand resonate? What's the real backlash? Because if we look at the past, Chinese brands have already tried to enter the U.S. market with very little success, but they're more confident than ever. They know that their brands and their products are globally competitive. And at the end of the day, the U.S. consumer should be able to buy whatever they want from whoever they want without the politicians chirping left and right. Because if GM or Ford aren't able to really supply a quality vehicle at $30,000, that goal of the Biden administration turning all the vehicles clean by 2035 or 2040 or whatever, that's going to be an impossible task if there's only a handful of automakers that are uh, going to be eligible to do that, right? That's fascinating. I'm looking forward to driving a massive BYD truck all the way across the US. <laughs> Tuli, thank you very much for joining us. Mike, thanks for having me. I'm back now with The Economist, Simon Wright. Simon, thank you very much for sticking around. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. So we heard from two there that China's manufacturers are looking seriously at international expansion and even at the US market. Do you think the likes of Ford and GM need to be worried about this? I think all the incumbent manufacturers need to be worried. It's not just America. Certainly, the Chinese will be looking at America in the future. But I think at the moment, they're looking at Europe much more seriously, and they're making inroads into the European market. 
it's small and slow at the moment, but it's going to get much, much bigger. And there are several reasons for that. The biggest reason is that the Chinese have built a huge electric car industry. The Chinese government's plan was always been to make a big, dominant global car industry in the country. And it realized it couldn't do that by taking on the internal combustion engine. It made the leap to EVs early. So it has a large EV industry. It has a dominant battery industry. And as a result, it has scale. And that scale brings with it low costs. While the incumbent car manufacturers are still building up scale in electric vehicles and relying on the profits of the internal combustion engine to sort of finance that, the Chinese have already have that scale. So they can bring cheap electric cars to Europe. But not only are they cheap, Chinese cars used to be pretty terrible. Chinese manufacturers thought all you really needed to do was take apart, say, you know, a Volkswagen suspension system, copy all the parts and sling them together. In fact, manufacturing at scale with the tolerances required is incredibly difficult, but they've learned to do that. And in fact, they've taken a leap ahead, perhaps in some ways of the Western incumbent car makers, because Chinese car buyers are much younger than Western car buyers. They demand a seamless digital lifestyle in their car. In the West, the average of a car buyer is well over 50. In China, it's sort of mid-30s. So they're bringing their cars that have that. They have this experience that people will enjoy at a reasonable price. And it's a price at the moment that can't be matched by the incumbent car makers in Europe. So, Simon, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that the massive growth in the electric vehicle market since, say, you know, the last 10 years during which Tesla, for example, have been selling mass market models what do you see coming? What are your predictions for the next 10 years in this industry and in this market? Well, look, I mean, the electric cars are coming and they're going to come much, much faster. The European Union, for example, has a date of 2035 when they will stop the sale of internal combustion engine cars, as we heard there from Thule. And so car makers are making their investment plans with that in mind. I mean, look, the growth has been incredible. If you look at 10 years ago, you know, there was a handful of electric cars. Last year, worldwide, 13% of cars were either fully battery electric or uh, hybrid. But in somewhere like Europe, 20% were electric cars in the last quarter. And that's just going to grow and grow and grow. So the future is undoubtedly electric. And once, you know, China is the main market, Europe next, the Inflation Reduction Act in America, you know, the green subsidies are going towards electric cars there, which is actually going to up the speed of adoption there. So the future is very much battery powered and very much electric. Brilliant. Simon, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mike. So, Tom, Alice, what do you make of what you've heard? Will you be rushing out to buy a Chinese car anytime soon? I'm not sure I'll be rushing out to buy any sort of car anytime soon, but I do think it's incredible how quickly Chinese car companies have managed to catch up and perhaps even overtake their Western counterparts. And the history of this is is really interesting. So the kind of Faustian bargain for Western firms to get access to the Chinese market when it opened to the world was joint ventures with Chinese firms. And That steadily allowed China to absorb the expertise of these foreign car makers into their local workforce. But that seems to have happened quite slowly until this kind of breakpoint brought on by electrification and the move to software. And that has allowed them to really shake up the competitive landscape. And now the Western car makers are facing this situation where they're not only losing share in the massive Chinese car market, but 
They're also looking at the possibility, geopolitics permitting, of losing ground in their home markets to these Chinese rivals that you could argue they helped to create. I too will probably not be uh, rushing out to buy a Chinese car anytime soon, although I may soon be in the market for a car. So I am sort of thinking about this decision somewhat seriously. In America, there are sort of lots of geopolitical reasons why that might not be a good idea, the least of which might be uh, that you get salty looks from your fellow compatriots uh, in the parking lot. But uh, I don't imagine that Chinese car makers are going to be rolling out loads of dealerships or that mechanics in America will be that familiar with uh, repairing the cars anytime soon. So it would be something of a risk at this point, I'm sure. That said, the competitive landscape for electric vehicles and vehicles in general is changing unbelievably quickly. I mean, you've seen the sort of significant fall in price that Tesla has managed to sort of put through for its cars. You've seen the sort of huge growth in Chinese exports of vehicles. And as much as it might seem like a bit of a risk to buy one of them now, I'm not certain that that will will necessarily remain the case uh, for long, maybe in America, but perhaps not other places in the world. Yeah, I think in my part of the world, it's where you're likely to physically see this the fastest, potentially. I think I've mentioned on previous podcasts, but I already see occasionally Chinese cars, you know, usually when I'm in a taxi, sadly, rather than driving one myself. But yeah, you already see them around. You've already seen expansions into places like Thailand, where there are already quite a lot of Chinese cars on the road. And this is a part of the world, you go to a Southeast Asian city, and it's just solely Japanese cars a lot of the time. You know, you can look around and just see endless Nissan, Toyota, Honda. So it's a really, really big change here. I love this story, to be honest, because it seems like an absolutely massive trend change to me. And it feels like it really came out of nowhere. You know, if you go back even 12 months, there was really nobody talking about this stuff. You know, go and look up the exports graph. We can't show you a graph here because it's audio. But if you go and look up the trade balance that China now has in autos, it's like a hockey stick. You know, it just goes straight up almost out of nowhere. And it's an area where brands are really associated with countries, as we've discussed. And China, in many ways, even though it's so influential in industry and and international trade, it doesn't always have that many brands that are really recognizable and influential, uh, especially in the Western world. And that would really change if you saw a huge number of Chinese cars on the road. I think it will reignite some of the arguments that we're familiar with about fair competition and subsidies. There's one estimate that I think the Chinese EV industry has had something like $100 billion in subsidies between like 2009 and 2019. And part of the story here is the fact that there's now a, a sort of oversupply of Chinese EV investment that's spilling out into the rest of the world. The US car companies are obviously going to say that this is all grossly unfair on them. It's not a level playing field at all. But we're now in a sort of period where everyone's on board with subsidies. You know, everyone's going to be doing this as we go forward. I'm fascinated to see how it all plays out. But sadly, I think that's about all the time we have to talk about cars. And now it's time for us to turn to our stats of the week. All right. Well, why don't I kick us off then? My stat of the week is 5,962, which is the number of greenfield foreign direct investment projects in Europe last year, according to a new study from EY. And that is up just 1% from last year, but it's still down 7% from pre-COVID levels. So more good economic news out of Europe. Yes, characteristically uh, uh, gloomy, I guess. My stat of the week this week actually is a point of surprising strength 
for the European economy, which is 3 billion euros, which was the level of Italian exports to China last month. And that is almost double the previous month and up about 60% from the same period last year. Now, this isn't because it turns out Italy has some sort of vital component going into Chinese EVs, but it's in fact because Italy is a a big producer of a generic liver drug that is rumoured to protect people against COVID-19, although that has not been definitively proven. And so Chinese people are buying this en masse to try and protect themselves from the virus. And that caused uh, Italian exports to China to almost double. See, that to me is still a miserable statistic because it's a boost to an export that's built entirely out of fear. I'm not into that one. I think that I think that's actually very money talks. Um, and, and on that subject, my stat of the week is something that I know we've all been paying incredibly close attention to, and it's Japanese nominal wage growth. If you're anything like me, you've been glued to these numbers for the past year. But the data for March has just come out and the nominal wage growth was 0.8%, which frankly is just absolutely pathetic. Japanese core prices up around 4% year on year at the moment, which means that Japanese workers are taking enormous real terms pay cuts, despite the fact that inflation is quite a bit lower in Japan than it is in a lot of the Western world. So yeah, another nice, miserable statistic to round off on. Maybe they uh, need some cheap Chinese cars to uh, help offset the falling real wages. (laughs) They're going to need it as cheap as possible. (laughs) And with that, I would like to thank Henrik Fisker and Tu Lee. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.